Misfit Toys. This episode is sponsored by Wondrium. Uh, Wondrium is an education platform, and it's got a huge variety of series, uh, documentaries, tutorials on uh, everything you can imagine. I've taken guitar lessons on there. Uh, before I took my uh, trip to Ireland a couple of years ago, I learned about the history of Ireland. Uh, and most recently, I've been watching a series uh, on mental health, and there was a an interview with uh, boxing legend Sugar Ray Leonard that's really cool. I uh, shares about the stigma of sexual abuse and finally facing his trauma. And the the episode is called Finding Strength in Mental Health. And there's a bunch of other episodes. So uh, check it out. There's a lot of good stuff there. So find your next aha moment by signing up for Wondrium. You will love it. Right now, Wondrium is offering you guys 50% off your first three months. That's half off when you sign up for your first quarterly plan. A fantastic deal. Sign up today through my special URL to get this offer. Go to wondrium.com mental. Again, that's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash mental. Wondrium.com slash mental. Welcome to episode 622 with my guest, Nadare Fenoyan. This is a best of episode originally recorded way back in 2011. Was anybody even alive in 2011? I think her story is very timely now, uh, being that uh, in the 80s, she was fighting the regime that is still in power uh, and sadly had to flee the country. But uh, her story has continued to evolve uh, since then, and I'll give you a little update on where her life is at the at the end of this episode. Um, before I forget, the Mental Illness Happy Hour is sponsored by BetterHelp.com Online Therapy. If you have never tried online therapy, what are you doing? Where have you been? My God. You get to do it from the luxury of your your couch, your recliner, your kitchen chair, your car, wherever you want to do it, wherever you want to do it. I've been doing it for, I think, six years now. And uh, my therapist, uh, Heidi, is she's great. She uh, she helps me. You know, a lot of a lot of the shit I'm kind of dealing with these days are smaller issues, I think, just because of all the the work I've done. Um, But it's really nice to have somebody kind of like, you know, BetterHelp uses the the analogy of the auto shop and having a an owner's manual. And it's nice to to go in for a tune up every every couple of weeks. So I highly recommend it. It's the world's largest therapy service. BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist, and if things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com dot com slash mental that's better help h-e-l-p dot com slash mental and make sure you include the slash metal so they uh, they know you came from the podcast and uh there will be a, a little break in this uh interview with not so uh we can 
give a, a little bit of sponsor love. But uh, other than that, this is uh, pretty much the uh, original episode uh, as it aired back in 2011. And I'm just going to fade things up here uh, where I give in, I introduce the, the episode and kind of give a really, really brief uh, rundown on some Iranian history for people that are younger viewers and may not uh, have any idea what's going on over there, Um, or at least was in in 2011. So uh, here now, that episode with Nadare Fanoyan. I know we have some some younger listeners who probably aren't familiar with the history of Iran, so I'm just going to give you a really quick, brief, broad stroke rundown. in the early 1900s, Iran, um, it was discovered that Iran had a tremendous amount of uh, oil, and the British signed a really bad deal, bad deal for the Iranians, um, and began extracting their oil. A lot of the Iranians were very resentful at it, but the, the people that were in charge of Iran at that point were princes and a lot of more opium addicts and they were very irresponsible well in 1953 they got rid of uh the monarchy and they had their first democratically elected representative um a guy by the name of Mossadegh and he one of the things he promised was that he was going to return the oil wealth to the people that they were going to stop these foreigners from coming in and uh, taking all this oil out and giving them basically 10%. You know, the British were basically keeping like 90% or something like that of the uh, oil revenues and the Iranians were getting like 10%. Well, the British didn't like this, so they orchestrated a coup with the help of uh, the CIA and they ousted Mossadegh. And he was democratically elected. So there was tremendous hostility towards the West. Um, once Mossadegh got booted out, eventually the Shah was the guy who was installed, who was basically a puppet of the multinational corporations. He did some good things in Iran. He modernized it. Um, he kept it from being um, uh, kind of the Muslim extremist place that it is today. But he also was uh, brutal. He was a dictator, tortured a lot of people, w- was not democratic uh, at all. And he was uh, eventually overthrown in 1979 by um, a lot of people, but the people that came to power were the Muslim extremists who now rule Iran. They didn't immediately come to power. There was sort of a, a period where all types of groups were fighting for power. And the group that Nadare fell into was a group uh, of Marxists. And that is basically where her story really kind of um, begins. The town that Nadare was born and raised in was very conservative, very poor, uh, divided about half Muslim, half Baha'i, which is a minority religion in uh, in Iran, and that's what her family was. And um, there was a treating of women and Baha'i people as second-class citizens that she was a little bit of aware of, but not completely aware of yet. And going to school was a big deal for her. And her mother had gone to Tehran, which is about a half-hour car drive away, but an all-day trip for people that were so poor they had no car. So it was a big deal that she had these clothes. And um, we started off with her talking about being excited for her, her very first day of school.
She went out of her way. She went to Tehran. She got me like all the nice like things that you prepare for first day of school. My uniform, you know, just made me look really perfect. I just it, it was just such a joyous thing to see that I get to go to school because my brother, brother and everyone else have already been going. They were older than me. So I just couldn't wait to like get to that part of my life. And I go in and I'm looking really nice and like big smile and excited and the person who was uh, the teacher at the time asked who in this class is not not Muslim. And I remember clearly me and a girl who was Jewish, uh, Jewish or and maybe another one who was Zoroastrian, three of us raised our hand and she told us, you all go sit in the last bench in the classroom and then she told everyone else that these people are not Muslim and you are not allowed to touch them or share your lunch with them or talk to them. Are you kidding me? That day, and again, I'm saying that this may have not happened in like Tehran or everywhere, but that was my experience. I remember that day I had my first broken heart as a human being knowing, I mean, imagine from that excitement of going to school and I knew it but I don't think like nobody warned me that look it's a lot more than they just not liking you that was like the first time I was ever discriminated and I got it to the bone what it is wow wow that that is such a powerful image that little girl being sent to the to the back of the the class so when you were 14, you met the guy that would become your your husband. Well, I met, uh, his name is Parviz, and I met uh, his sisters, uh, and they were the one who were um, working um, for for the organization that I, I had interest in. Because again, we had so many like different small like lefties, that they like some were you know Maoists, some mm -hmm. were communists, and some you were, were protesting the Shah at that at that point because the no 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 the no? Shah was overthrown already. Oh, he was okay. Yeah, Shah was overthrown already, and I didn't had much part in that because again, we were Baha'i and we were so t terrified that these people who dividing me and you know telling me go sit in the back of the class are going to be our government they are going to mm -hmm. come and take power so the bahai people feared for their life we weren't like excited about going and because shah even if like you know like for, for whatever you know problem was out there he still protected us he was secular yeah, yeah. I mean, he would like if if someone killed Baha'i people, he would at least go and prosecute them. Right. But if if this government were to come to power, Khomeini takes place, he could actually jihad against Baha'i people and say, now you can kill everybody, and it's okay. okay. And they did in a lot of cities. Okay. So you. Oh, I'm you getting excited all of a sudden. Oh, oh that's okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, mad more than excited. So you you join this group. You you meet the sisters of your uh, future husband, right? Um, now they're Muslim. They so, are Muslim. So why are they uh, against the Iranians, uh, the fundamentalists coming to power? Because they know that it's a 
misrepresentation of Islam? No, 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 no. There is a lot of people just like here that are born like Christ Christian, but they don't necessarily go to church or practice it. They were, it's a predominantly a Muslim country. So uh, a lot of younger people, they don't even believe in gen like religion or they don't go to Moscow or they don't practice, but they are of a Muslim, you know, family. So, so they're like Catholics. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you may say so. Yes. Yeah, even among the Muslim, really, if you look at it, there is a very small percentage that not only are in support of the government, we have a lot of Muslims that don't support the government. They're very peaceful people mm. and they're against the injustice, but we, we, it's, it's a big range yes. of like what you're just like here, okay. you know, just okay. like here. So if, if younger people like me are looking for trouble, that is going to give them a reason to come and do more harm to Baha'i family who had nothing to do with what choice I'm making sure. as a young. So it was a lot of pressure by Baha'i people. It was tremendous amount of pressure by my family uh, to not do this because it's going to cause more trouble for Baha'i who really were scared for their life and their well-being. Mm -hmm. However, I was fully aware for so many other personal reasons. As a child, I, I started learning that life is not how you see it. There are people who lie. There are people who um, pretend. And I also had some issue with my father, and he was uh, a little abusive. Uh, well, that could be defined what a little is, but uh, I had a lot of uh, turmoil inside. And when the revolution was going on, I was just ready. I was. I wanted to find out why we are poor, why there is all these things. I also encountered a lot of other things that was like not appropriate in 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 the village, um, in the line of like sexual abuse, in the li line of like uh, men battering, you know, their their wives. I I really somehow was really fully aware of the injustice and the facade of how everybody pretend that these things don't exist. And my upbringing really like evolve around keeping things secret. You don't talk about it. You don't acknowledge it. You don't bring it up. And somehow, I don't know why, I just as personality, I really wanted to like figure out why. So when um, the, the revolution was happening, it had my 100% attention. So um, having this background, I just naturally like really got gravitated towards the politic and wanted to pursue it. And the more my parents wanted to stop me, the more I want to retaliate against them. So in pursuing that, uh, I, I met someone and I told them, look, I want to be like really fully active. I don't want to just be, you know, just coming and buying your newspaper. I want to be in, you know. So they were very careful at the time. They um, introduced me to a few girls who happened to be the sister of the man that I will 
marry at some point but he wasn't in the picture as much back then because I was working with the sisters they were around my age and we had our own little responsibility but I would because I was such a newcomer they would just give me little small thing to test me out and see mm -hmm. how much I can grow to learn about my character this was a very serious thing you are underground you are like putting your life on the line and they need to really understand who you are before they like allow you in you know farther and farther and uh, the reason why I got married is because I just got really exhausted from fighting my parents to stop me from being you know involved or being on the street and going you know to different organization and stuff like that it was really not common especially for my village for a girl to take a political stand let alone to say no to their parents and like hide and jump off the wall and go to Tehran and then come back you know it was like really really traumatizing more than anyone for my mother because in one hand she had to control me in other hand she had to answer the rest of the people that why your daughter is so out of control. I brought a lot of shame to her. Yeah. So to get out of that, you, you married your husband, who obviously uh, was not on board with the uh, Khomeini style of, uh, of Islam. He was a, a moderate. Uh, they, they were actually, the, the family had the history of opposition with Shah, their uncle back then, you know was part of the so compared to me I was a peasant girl you know he was from the city the family was very modern the girls had a lot of freedom it was okay to be in politic the mom was really like you know supportive of the kids it was just like the ultimate ideal dream family that I could ever ask for compared to like how we were brought up. The girls shouldn't do this. The girls shouldn't do that. We are Baha'i. We shouldn't be in politics. Don't ask a lot of questions. So naturally, I really, you know, I really got close to them. And when I saw all this pressure and when I knew for a fact I want to be 100% committed, my only way was the only way out was to really get married because then the pressure was off of my family. Okay, this girl is out of hand, but she has a husband. So right. we're not responsible for her right. anymore. So in a lot of sense, it was, of course, that I liked him, but I was more focused on, okay, if I marry him, because he's also active, he's going to, like, we both are going to be committed 100%. So my the, the my most like you know motivation for marriage was to allow my situation to let me to be even more involved and active in against you know the the regime okay let's fast forward you get pregnant you're still underground yes your husband is abducted by the regime well, or arrested? Yeah, well, we, at the time, I don't know. All we know is that all of us, these are like the last days of, uh, you know, us being really active and organized. And apparently we think uh, it was a leak somewhere, you know, and um, all of a sudden, a lot of people in the party were missing. We didn't know where they at. And we didn't really know how we've been infiltrated. Mm -hmm. So it was really hard to know who to trust, what to do. Um, and 
a year before that it was this massive like arrest and execution and trying to create a lot of like terror so whoever is like half as active you know they're gonna stop so we were the one who the harsher it got we went deeper underground and I want to just really make a point of saying that I was very young I was very new into politics and everything but because of my circumstances all of a sudden, I got to a level that somebody would reach in terms of like my activity. It would take him probably 10, 15 years to get to the point that I was or how deep I was involved just because I didn't have any history in the past. So they couldn't like the government couldn't come after me or you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Then I already was married with the person who was committed. So all of a sudden, before I know it, imagine like I am applying for a job and they are saying that, oh, okay, you are the assistant of CEO all of a sudden. So I didn't have that political uh, growth, but I had myself up to my neck into politics and into a place where it wasn't even in my understanding. Yeah. But again, you know, you are when when you are in that time, you just don't know. You can't see it. You go back Give years me. later and you understand how deep, how fast you got in a place that you don't even you, you couldn't even understand what Give it is. Give me a typical day. Um, what it was like at the most dangerous being underground. What what would be some of the covert activity that you would that you would do? Um and how would you have to make sure that you weren't seen or... So nobody, like, because me and my husband were actually a married couple, that was perfect. We had other members who would act like they are, you know, married couple or whatever. So it was really good for us to be actually married when if someone, like, came to our house, they would see actual marriage, you know, picture, wedding. It was a legitimate setting. Even if we were together, you know, for and we provided our house for a lot of other things. But in the eye of the neighbor, which we never knew who is a spy, who is watching who, it's absolutely like trust no one type of deal. We would every morning play out as we are an ordinary couples. My husband would pretend that he's going to work every day certain hours but then he would arrange his whatever he need to do in that time i would my like imp my persona was that i am a very uneducated village girl who like was saved by this muslim man who brought me from village and you know like now i'm married and devoted to him then I would pretend like, you know, put my little um, cover things and go out on the street as your cover I things am. meaning your, your Muslim... Uh, well, I didn't do the Muslim, but yeah, back then we still had to like put something to cover our hair. But then you had another option, they call it chador, which means you're not religious uh, doing that, but it's something that covers your hair and everything and the fabric has color in it. And you could just throw it over you and you go shopping. That's like more like a housewife kind of thing. I see. Um, and I would get that pretending like, oh, I'm going to go out, uh, get, you know, stuff. So on a day to day basis, we had to pretend that we are normal people. We had to have people who are looking older to come to our house. So just so we don't rise suspicious. You may, we don't like make anyone suspicious. But 
none of my parents none of my uh, side husband side of family nobody knew where we live absolutely not and i remember that my mom would cry and cry and then we wouldn't tell nobody that we are active this was like 120% secret but we would pretend we wouldn't even like when we go out on the street we would never ever like even use certain word that would gi- would give a hint that we might be intellectual or whatever uh, and then again uh, when the the timing was got, getting really tougher and tougher my husband had to go and find a job because they would give us like they would pay for our rent and we would like live off of bread and cheese every day to just be 100% like you know doing what we had to but then they said look you know it, if someone follows you they know you don't have a job or if they ask you so he went and he became a bus driver for the city to just again pass as normal mm-hmm. you know couple right so we had we had to cover Again, another example is that we would never go and rent a house that if you come in, there is not a way to escape from back. We would like look all of the, you know, location and what are the escape places. If they come in, how longer would it take him to get to us? So we would really strategize what, where we would live, what neighborhood, in what kind of housing architect that was really because it was just 24 hours what what was it like living with that looming over your head every day that you could be captured and executed every minute of every day is there's that possibility what what kind of how does that affect you emotionally and mentally i i speak for myself because again based on who got involved at what age with what kind of political maturity or, you know, like developmental maturity, everyone's experience is very different. Again, whoever listened to this, please remember, this is my experience because if someone who's been doing this 20 years, they were in a whole different level of understanding what they're doing. For me, it was very emotional. I didn't have a lot of like, you know, at age 21, or at age 20, I've been only that deeply involved for two years. So how much book can I read in two years? How much can I evolve in two years to understand what the hell I'm doing? So my motive was very emotional because I would think like, I would remember my father who as a farmer, like been working his ass off all his life. He couldn't even freaking afford to go buy a full suit in Tehran to attend to a nice place. So I had a lot of emotional attachment to why I'm doing what I'm doing. Because to me, I was a communist. I want revolution. I want justice. I want fairness. And my reference was the people that I love the most. For someone who came from a different, like political or educational level, might have been very different. How you wanted economic equality, or whatever. I I wanted justice. Injustice. I, yeah. I and then the fact that Baha'i people what were under so much scrutiny. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, it was the first time that I could go to the people who were in the same organization 
and brag about how poor I am <laughs> because right. you know that I was I used to make fun of them and say you guys are bougies you're bourgeois yeah. you know you're middle class saying your middle class was like the biggest put down ever yeah so I was absolutely proud of like because it, you know our mentality was that the proletariat and the 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 worker the one at the lowest are the leaders so i felt like you know they have you've to got street cred absolutely like is, is there a um when you're dealing with the fear of being discovered and possibly executed is there an alleviation of that fear by the passion and the sense of justice that you feel does that help lessen that fear or is that fear still there intensely for me it was it, it was what? it was i was very afraid of death i was really like it was almost like a little um alarm sound that i couldn't shut off that i was aware but again and you know that's one thing that i really always like wish that i could like see the people who in that era were doing the same thing which the majority of them are not alive today to have the opportunity to be able to share those fear we were in a, in order to give a fair example imagine that someone is in a military right now a young man they don't know for what cause They've some trying to get away from poverty, some trying to break, you know, for everybody for a different reason, join the military. And before you know it, they're sending them in a war zone in Afghanistan or Iraq, right? Mm -hmm. So everybody is going to relate to it differently. But there is this very dominated culture that constantly is telling you, you're doing this for the right cause. You're doing this to help your country. You help. So there is a little sense of you basically brainwash yourself a lot to stay very hype and deal with your fear but again if every soldier we don't know in their heart who really buy into that or who is sh literally shedding in their pants every day thinking what the fuck am i doing here but you bu but you bought into and believed your cause i i had my ups and down i was very proud i was very determined I was very committed to the point that if they said, okay, put this freaking bomb around yourself and go to so-and-so location and kill yourself, I probably would have talked myself into doing it, but I would be very afraid dying. Mm -hmm. I know some weren't. I know for a fact firsthand some really that wasn't an issue for them. Another thing that all of us were really, really afraid of was that if we get captured, they'll do anything in their power to get information out of you yes and the and the so and the information the fresher it is the better it is so the first 24 hours is going to be beyond your imagination out of your you know just again a soldier gets captured by the enemy so and we would but you know in the same time we would, you know, it was a very bittersweet uh, life, and it was. Um, I miss it. I really miss it because we were very zoned into a dimension of life where you really believe today could be your last day, and because of that, you lived to absolute fullest. I was afraid of death. 
but I would notice a very small little flower on the side of a street and I would stay there and look at it and feel how precious it is that we have this gorgeous red color coming out of dirt. I would like look at my husband and the love that I would exchange. It was just so deep, so deep that even to this day, I have never, never experienced it with any human, not just my husband, but I would have my other comrade come in and I knew I'd take a bullet for them. And I knew between the two of us, if it comes down to it, he's going to go first to die. I'm going to go first to die. And we're going to fight about who's going to save whose life. And I'm not trying to make this like a Hollywood movie. I don't think you or are. Or anything like that. I don't like think that. you are. Go ahead. But we, we, we lived in a very extraordinary circumstances that I don't think all humans get to experience. And to me, as as difficult it has been to deal with the aftermath, I think it was one of the most rare special experiences that probably the, the most of us, the rest of us will only read it in the book and still don't get what it's like to be that close and that dedicated. Is it is it fair to say that you, though the circumstances were unfortunate you you got to understand the importance of being completely present and feeling a sense of purpose in your life oh 200% not only purpose but also really knowing that i do have that power to change the world you know like from from like you know and you know this is the thing this is the curse because when i got broken away from that life and thrown to this ordinary life where there is no cause to this very day to this right now i cannot replace that i do look for cause i do look for i do everything every day to find something remotely close to that feeling of purpose and wholeness and it's nothing but a struggle because I can't find it anymore. Oh, that breaks my heart. It is true. It is true. Well, let's let's fill in some of the... Because I want to get to your living here in the United States and some of the mental struggles that, that, that you've had, but I, I certainly don't want to gloss over... What happened to your husband, you being pregnant, you going to Sweden? And my husband is missing. Yes. He, so he was uh, <sighs> ab uh, arrested, abducted. Yeah, I was uh, six months pregnant. The last day we spent together, I remember we had we went to the gynecologist. They told us, oh, you have a boy. And we went in a park, and these are the last few days that we have gotten instruction from the higher up that get out, however you can, get out. Get out of the country? Get out. Get out of the country, go to hiding. There is no way anyone can survive. People were, like, missing one day after. There's this movie, Pelican Brief, like, by mm -hmm. Julia Robert. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that was our reality. Like, just get out. People are missing. Anywhere we go, like, we couldn't trust 
nobody. Like we, we knew just as a matter of second that we get arrested. So they give us little money or whatever. So my husband said, and this is like something that again, you, you just keep going back forever. He had to meet someone at six o'clock and he didn't have to. It was a courtesy thing. But because he knew that guy and he like felt so much for him because he was a father of a three years old and we had hide them in our house for three months and they were like the highest, highest rank in the party. He said, look, I know I don't have to, but I have to go see Ahmad. I have to tell him what's going on. And if he needs money, I'm going to share what we have with him so he can get the hell out. Oh, he needs to know. He doesn't know yet that the word, is, does, word is out. Well, we don't know that, little. but okay. he took that chance. He wanted and to make he sure. he didn't he have to. Okay. Yeah. By our rule, you, you're not going to anywhere if they tell you just get out. Mm-hmm. But he was hoping that if he doesn't know, he does that to save his life. And I argued with him that day back and forth for a very like a good 30 minutes that look I'm pregnant I'm a woman it's least likely people gonna catch me on the street and arrest me because I look you you are a man so let me go let me tell Ahmad and then next morning we out of here like we, we're gonna mm-hmm. find a way to leave the country so we went back and forth and can you imagine the like I threw the feminist thing and I said you are sexist because I really didn't want him to go mm-hmm. and I'm like you are sexist because you think I'm a woman I shouldn't go and he's like just shut the fuck up look you have a child in your stomach I'm not gonna let you go I don't care what card you're gonna pull so he goes and he never comes back and years later, and this is a work of m- like many years for me to go back and try to put things together and find out what happened that what I guess it happened and I try to reconfirm with people who have survived here there is that he does go to the meeting, but some third person knew that they two are going to meet that night at six o'clock so the the militia is already waiting for both of them to show up and when they show up they arrest them both same time and and they were that wherever they were going to meet i didn't know where and they were probably both executed not not on on the spot my husband was um there was a there was a saying that under the um the, the U.S. Embassy, mm-hmm. the, the underneath of it, they have made a huge dungeon when they take the first comer, that first 24 hours that I'm talking about, is like they take him there. They don't even take the chance to take him to prison, Evin, or something. That's where they have Because they all, want him isolated. No, no, the torture and stuff. They have the mm-hmm. highest, best equipment. The fresh one goes there. The first 24 hours is when you're going to get the most information to get more member arrested, to find out where you live, to get your document. And again, we already had that understanding, me and my husband. So he said, don't tell me where you go, but don't go to the house tonight, just in case. And if you don't hear from me, just know that just just go, go and do what you have to do. So we already did all the precautions. And of course, he didn't want to know where I'm at, just in case if they torture him, he wouldn't say where I'm at. Right. But again, we broke another rule because I told him I don't care. And these are all big no-no, you know, because it's such a huge burden for him to know where I was at. But I told him I'm going to stay in, in that place, but not our house. 
So if they really torture you or whatever, we always talked about if mm-hmm. something go wrong, what is our plan? I said, just give up the address of our house. But I'm going to be there just in case if you are like, you know, going to join me a day later or mm-hmm. whatever, whatever. So that wasn't the case. He never showed up. And I knew it, that he was going to meet me at like 620. At 621, I knew he's gone. But I didn't did know if he's like? missing. I didn't sleep till morning. I just keep hoping that he had to escape and he is elsewhere and he can contact me, but he's alive and he's uh, well. And that wish didn't actually last long because in the morning I found out that last night they have gone to our house. So I knew for a fact he's arrested because he had given the address to the house. And knew, I knew for a fact he's being tortured. And there's nothing, nothing in this world like knowing that not only you're not going to see your loved one anymore, but at this very moment, they are they're beyond imagination, tortured, and probably a lot of them died under torture. And I'm carrying a six months child in my stomach for him. It's, uh, it's just, it's nothing like it. I knew that night I'm not gonna see him ever again. But again, uh, we were prepared for this. It's, it's no surprise. We have, prior to this, lost other people. We have had a lot of, you know, we had a girl who uh, was hiding in our house that we heard on the spot had cyanide and chewed and died. Like, this wasn't just me and him and isolated in this incident. It's happening everywhere, all over. Like, I don't know, go back to uh, the German in fascist time, you know, and see Jew- the, the Jews are trying to hide. One get killed, one get arrested, one is missing. Just like multiply my story in, in a country that has 40 million people and just see the scale of what's going on. And I would imagine the chaos of it and the uncertainty just multiplies the anxiety and the mental toll that it takes because, you know, to to deal with pain is hard enough to begin with, but to deal with pain where you don't really know the exact truth and you probably just keep playing it over and over again in your mind, that has got to be its own type of torture. It was... You know, it's interesting because the mentality that we had was always to find out in what ways the enemy is trying to destroy us. So I knew if I'm going to give in to the thought of, oh, I'm losing. If I was going to personalize the depth of this tragedy, mm-hmm. it would be against my belief because it wasn't personal. This was a political movement. And I was, I don't have a word for it here. I don't know. I was a soldier child or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like I had a bigger purpose, bigger belief. I was devastated. But the first thing in my mind was like, okay, just like pragmatic. Okay, so how am I going to survive the next day? Who 
do I think that I need to like you know who are the other people who might be at risk if pa Paris is arrested who should I notify that look he's gone so whatever information he has about you just lose it just go somewhere else so we were all again in that mentality where what's next to mm -hmm. survive we did survive three years of that by the way it wasn't after, like after he was no no arrested. no no but but generally like I that see. mentality that life is it wasn't my husband it wasn't my turn but we did help other who that happened to them and it, it was happening you know so it wasn't like oh I'm like shocked did wow this happened to me I see it, we were prepared it was expected it was part of the deal and that's why we were in there and you just have a different resource in you that the harder it gets, the stronger you feel. I hear soldiers talk about that sometimes when they come back from war, and as horrifying as it is, they miss that focus, that sense of purpose, that camaraderie. Absolutely. Um, that Just that heightened experience of being human. Being human, and there's a voice tells you, which is the probably the voice that saves you, is that whoever that imaginative enemy is that you talk to them and you're like you cannot break me you son of a bitch take my husband but i'm gonna find a find a way to stay alive and escape yeah. and so you did escape six months pregnant i was in hiding for 40 days that 40 days was the most difficult time because my resources was from nothing to zero or zero is nothing to I couldn't go to any of my family I couldn't go to any of Paris family I couldn't go to places that the government might suspect that I am in so there is now an army of people that are after me because they know Paris is a political activist and they know he's married to me so they are after me and again like Pelican brief like three time by three minutes by five minutes and by eight minutes, I escape before they find me. Wow. I would like, I would call like, you know, the sister of the friend of the so-and-so and say, look, I need some money. And we would speak in code, but they were, none of these people that I'm talking are political or have political involvement. So I'm going to the safest of the safest that I can imagine and I can't tell them what's going on because then they would be scared or they would not want to help me. So this is pure, like, you fucking, this is it. You All you got is yourself and nothing else. And they are after you everywhere. They have your picture. They know what places you might show up. So I had to come up with ways to, like, make it one hour at a time. But I did. I recall that when I was on the street, everybody who moved I thought oh they're just gonna jump on me oh my god yeah everybody who just took a fast turn I was just like oh my god yeah you know I just because they wouldn't they wouldn't like come like okay you are under arrest because they're afraid we might have cyanide mm -hmm. and we might kill ourselves on the spot so they would do it in a way that you least expect and they would like right away throw you down the floor wipe your mouth or sometimes like they would do whatever to catch you alive so that 40 days i am just like it's almost like somebody has a gunpoint at your head and saying that they're gonna shoot and they keep you in that 
that way for 40 days. Or they say, okay, if you move, it might shot you. That sounds worse than last comic standing. <laughs> I don't want to exaggerate. I, was, I, I don't want to hoping, exaggerate. I, <laughs> I was hoping you break it with some <laughs> funny something, something, Paul. <laughs> so... You I told you I get excited. You have to keep I, me you are, in check. You are on point. You are on point. Uh, Nadore, before we started rolling, was like, I tend to, you know, uh, get very talkative and, and passionate, and please feel free to steer me if I start getting off off uh, track. Um, you can do no wrong, because I love you so much. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I, uh, you know, I feel a bond to you. Just from the couple of emails that we've shared and yeah. hearing your story and just the nice stuff that you've, you've and I hope seen. I have a chance to tell the audience why before we finish because I want that little story too that how accidentally I found you. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. Well, maybe we'll do that at the uh, at the end. Okay. Um. So you managed to make it across the border into Turkey with help from your your husband's sisters. Yes. Um. And my mother. And your mother. Yeah. You make it into Turkey um, under the guise of you're going on a maternity shopping spree in Istanbul. Correct. Um, you then go to Sweden, pregnant with your child. The United Nations already knew of the severity of the situation. And they knew there is one of them who is six months pregnant. So when I show up, apparently the guy, I never forget his name, Bukri. He's just like how many years ago? I still remember his face. He was half Algerian, half French. And he told the guy who was facilitating that she doesn't even need to come to like to stay in line. He showed up in my house in the place that we were renting at the time, 820 at night. And as if like he's my father, like he hugged me so hard. And was so happy that that pregnant lady did escape that, and I'm, I just don't know. This is the first time I ever left Iran. Like two days ago, I'm trying to create revolution in Iran. Two days later, there's this guy who doesn't speak Iranian and is tall and big and holding me and crying. And, you know, it was just very... What did that feel like when you were hugging him? He was hugging me. I was no, like, when he was hugging you. What did that feel like? Was it? I was just like, why is he crying? Like, what is what's going on? Like, who is he? I didn't even know. There's things called UN. There are people who migrate. There are people who are. I didn't even know what the word refugee is. I was communist day and night. We're trying to change the regime and uh, do a revolution. And to I, I wasn't. I I never thought farther than that that was my life and i thought i'm gonna you know succeed the revolution and i was trying to see in what poor villages how many school i'm gonna build and how many girls i'm gonna educate you know that was my future yeah. or how am i gonna die you know am i gonna be tortured am i gonna be able to not like give anybody's name am i gonna be able to like stand very solid if they kill me that was like my day-to-day -day, like mm -hmm. thinking. Okay, so then let's fast forward to you give birth to to your boy. Did that take place in Sweden? No, in in Istanbul. 
in where? Istanbul. Istanbul yeah, okay. Turkey, Istanbul. Okay, so you give birth to him, and what happens to him? Um, so I give birth to him. The, the Sweden was a country who said she can go as soon as she want to. And then I said, look, you know, uh, my mother-in-law is going to come here to help me to give birth. And I want the family to see the baby. So can I say two months or till I give birth? And they said, look, you know, we do know that the Turkish government do exchange the, the high up political people to the government in Iran. And pe the governments always do these things when it comes down to the heart of the people who nobody likes. Mm -hmm. Turkey didn't like communists, didn't like courts. Iran didn't like, so when it comes to those things, the biggest enemy is also totally networking underground without anyone publicly knows that. So the UN said, we don't recommend it. We don't have any way of protecting your life. And if you were taken and sent back to Iran, there's nothing we can do. And again, we said we, we really need to take the chance and stay. And it wasn't 100%, but compared to the, the, yeah. the danger I was in, that was like Hawaii for me. I'm <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, I'm just going to rest and like, you know, breathe and know that I'm, I'm going to be alive. You know, yeah. that's, I was just soaking on that idea of like, I, I'm going to live. I'm yeah. not going to die. I'm going to live. So, um, then, um, uh, so I decided to stay till the birth of my son. And while I, we were preparing to take my son with me to um, Sweden as a political refugee, we got a telegram because we didn't have phone or anything in our apartment that it was a letter from Evin Prezen, which is very notorious in Tehran, or everybody knows Evin is like, it was loaded with political prisoners and mm -hmm. very well known uh, internationally. Uh, there is a telegram from your husband that he is alive, and he is in uh, uh, Evin prison, and in two weeks he has a visiting right and the immediate family which are the wife the child the mom and the dad could go and visit him that sounds like the biggest trap in the world well not necessarily well even if it was I was already gone and they already knew it because we called the the, the phones that were tapped and we told everybody that we are in Turkey so they mm. would stop looking for us and they would stop torturing the family so they knew for a fact that we are gone so we didn't think that's a trap. We knew, and it was like enough time passed that it did make sense that if he was arrested, this is around the time where mm. they would like, you know, say, okay, he's in prison. And we, they got, probably, we got the information out of him. Exactly, that we exactly. And then what we didn't know was that sometimes, it, there's no rule or law, but sometimes they would um, give one visitation before execution. So now I am faced, well, of, of course, it was like a celebration, knowing he's alive. Mm -hmm. Like, it was like... How did you know he was alive and it wasn't fake? Uh, because most of the time the government actually, they wouldn't lie because they wouldn't gain anything. I see. You know, like, if, if someone was in prison and they were going to give a visitation... Already the the family, me and his sister, we are all out. They have no gain. They have no time. They have bigger uh, 
what they say egg to fry okay you know th this is they did what they could and we are old case now they're mm -hmm. going after the fresher one okay. so they, they don't have that much time to just torture us you know yeah so um all of a sudden i'm ready to go to sweden with my son and i'm faced with this thought that my husband is alive i don't know if they're gonna kill him or not but he never got to see his child and knowing what he had to survive or what he has gone through and just so many things that goes through your mind I don't know but all I could think about is what if this there was a way that he could see his child and if that was even his last visit but I knew for the rest of my life that he did see his child. So now all, all I'm focusing on is what can I do to make that happen? All risk. All, that's like, that's the craziest thought that someone will have in their mind. And I know whoever listened to this, this like, are you fucking out of your mind? Like you just saved yourself. You saved your child. And you're going to go back to all, all you're thinking about is how my husband going to see his own son. And to me, that was the number one desire that I had more than anything else. So I'm going to make this very short. We go to the UN. We go to the Turkish embassy. We go to Swedish embassy. I do my footwork in terms of research and how possible is it that we send the child back only for three weeks with my mother-in-law because she wasn't a political activist. And if she could, if she comes back to Turkey, would you all grant her immediate visa? So I was trying to build a case to see how safe it is. Of course, everybody said, you're crazy. Don't do it. Um, but again, compared to the danger that I have survived, then this was again is like, oh, don't send your child to, I don't know, like, uh, it, it was really yeah. a vanilla risk. Yeah, don't send it him to In-N-Out Burger after yeah, midnight. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I'm like, uh, it just wasn't comparable. Right. So make the story short. Uh, I talked to my mother-in-law and the rest of the family. And um, of course, we all are like, there is that moment of awkwardness, silence, this idea, is it crazy? Is it possible? And then when we do the food work and we talk and everything, we're saying that we're going to do it. So my mother-in-law is a very smart, bright woman. Very, very like, oh, she's just brilliant. And then she's like, I got a great idea. You're Baha'i, right? So I'm going to go to the Islamic uh, embassy and say that and back then it wasn't computerized where everywhere you go they can have all your file you could right. go in every little sector and make up your story and they couldn't be able to compare note together it's a chaos it's not sure. organized like united states and then um she said i'm gonna go say this woman is baha'i i want to take the child and bring it back home and raise him a muslim so i can get the entry visa for the child to go and then I find a way there to bring him back to Turkey. And then, you know, I come and give the child to you. Gotcha. So our promise was that three weeks, you go, you do the first visit, you let Paris see his son, kiss him. And whatever happened after that, it doesn't matter because then you're going to bring the child to me. 
I'm not going to go to any more detail, but I learned, I don't know if when my mother-in-law was taking my son, in his, in her heart, instantly he knew, she knew that she's going to take him away from me, or I don't know if that started developing as she started bonding with my child, or I don't know if that developed when she saw what a joy this child is to her captured son, who has been tortured and is at risk to die any minute. I don't know what factor caused that. And I don't want to, of course, I want to say that, like, you know, if anyone this in this world, she's the one who has hurt me the most, more than the government, more than anyone I know in this planet. But again, I don't want to, I want everyone to know that there is so many factors involved when it comes to this kind of extraordinary circumstances that you just don't know who is coping how. So she took So your- she took my son and there is so much detail involved that why in a set of three weeks it was supposed to be a month after a month, it was two months after two months, blah, 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 blah. And three years later, they killed my husband. They executed him in prison and she vanished. And I have already not seen my child. As she keeps saying that she's going to bring him, she's going to bring him. But the minute my husband died, she was like, no, you're never going to see your son again. And my mom and so many other people, I didn't talk to them, but the first thing they said when when my mother-in-law showed up with my child which we all called him, by the way, Miracle Baby, because we both were alive. I was in a hospital, and I gave birth to my child. And for the visitation, somebody, I found out later that that day, about 50 people signed as uncle and aunt to come and (laughs) say hi to me and my child because they have heard our story. They didn't even know us. And they all signed as uncle. That day I got called from like, I got, I got called the entire day from people who I've never known, but apparently they were our comrade and they were hearing. And times like this, when you know everybody is dying, knowing that somebody made it out alive and there's a child that is born, it's just like, it's just like the greatest thing that can just lift your spirit. You need things like that. And in the same time, it was like a big F you to the government that Mm -hmm. I'm alive and my child is born and he's called Miracle Baby. What was your code name? Um, Mahnaz. That's another name in in, in Iranian. I I had a different places different. Look, to this day, another thing that is very difficult for me to go back and try to put the little pieces of the puzzle together is that a lot of us really didn't know our real name, our real age, or our real house. So it's really hard. Like if I don't see someone's picture, I don't know who they are. So a lot of people, I don't know if they're still alive, if they're dead, because I've never gone back to Iran 
They don't know who my real name is. I don't know what their real name is. But I have been here and there trying to like put the little lost pieces back together throughout the years. Would you be in danger if you went back to Iran? Uh, well, in the beginning, absolutely. But I mean, when they just arrest a person who is a U.S. citizen as a journalist, as a spy, I'm assuming yes. that probably yes. Yeah. Yeah. I have never been back since I left Iran, which is about mm -hmm. like almost 25 years. My son was raised under the impression that the grandparents are the actual parents. So the mother-in-law that took him Correct. told him, I'm your mother. You, I'm your mother. So He thinks you're a crazy lady. Well, I internationally... Uh, contacted a lot of organization when I was in United States. I left Sweden after they uh, said your husband is killed mm. and th the mother-in-law said dream that you're going to see your son. So I knew that part of my life is over and I was just like I was being suicidal is just like really undermining what the stage of mind I was in, you know. And um and it's not psychosis because psychosis, you know, you hear, I don't know what it is, that kind of despair that, you know, you lost your husband and you're, you're not going to see your son here. Like all that little hope you have is all done and over with. Again, I have to like just brief the story. There's so much detail involved in what happened to me there, but I came to United States and, um, I, um, decided to go back to school. I uh, was studying nursing and psychology, and I came across this most, most wonderful people who became truly, truly the core of my support to this day. They're like my, they're just like, I don't know what to call them. They're my backbone. They are my angels. So back then I was, um, they were helping me. I was very out about my story and I was very you know it's almost like you're having a missing child so I was constantly trying to find ways to find out how to get him back so they helped me we contacted a lot of like you know organization I talked to a lot of people who something similar has happened to them and apparently in the beginning I thought well they're in Iran and even if I know where he's at, I have no way of going getting him. You know, I'm Baha'i, I'm political activist, and by the Islam law, the father of the family have the right to the child, not the mother. So case closed. Yeah. But, you know, I so in the beginning, it was like, okay, you know, the, just because they don't want me to reunite with him, they're probably going to stay in um, in Iran. And I didn't know, but apparently the mother came, and I don't know all the details, they're all my assumption, but at some point, I don't know how many years later, goes to Norway, where he has a son who lives. Who as, has a son who lives? Uh, Harry's brother, my, my oh, mother-in-law's okay. son. Okay. So she goes there, she, um, she has a different name, a different date of birth for my son and register as a mother's son to Norway and get residentship. So the reason why I never was informed, like I would go to Swedish embassy. I, I had a lot of friends in Sweden to to see if I can find a way to like 
find where they are. I see. And your mother-in-law took him to Norway just because she wanted to be near her, her other son? Probably. I don't okay. know. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm guessing because they killed, you know... Her other son. The son that she was there to stay. All her kids were whether in Sweden or Norway, so naturally I'm assuming okay. that she needed to leave that part of her life behind and come and stay with her kids. Okay. But I don't know. I'm in the United States and I'm under the impression that they are in Iran. So anyhow... You find out that he's in Norway and you go 14 there. 14 years later. So my son is 14 years and I have a friend and I have, a, again, I have a team of the most beautiful soul in Sweden who've been continuously, nonstop trying to find ways to reunite me with my son. I have family in Iran who try to find ways to see where they're about, but they kind of like when hidden underground so they really knew actively that they're gonna cut all possible contact to have me to find out they sheltered him and I don't know all the detail of it uh, so at age 14 I my <laughs> I never forget it my friend calls and she's like uh, what are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm home. I just, you know, I was, I already was a nurse. I finished the school. You're in San Francisco. At this I'm point. in San Francisco. I bought myself a house. I was very proud, you know. And she's like, well, you need to sit down. And I'm like, okay. And you know, when you always think of worse, you always think of, you know, best. And I'm already all, I'm having all kind of problem, but I'm also really in a good place because I accomplished, you know, finishing school. I'm really motivated. I'm going forward. And I always decided no matter what, I'll stay centered and focused just in case if my son ever, if I never found him and he ever later on in life came and said, okay, I want to know who that person was. Um, because I still don't know that he doesn't even know that he has a mother. Right. I don't know what information, right. you know. I just wanted him to look at my life and my story and say, oh, okay, I'm proud of her. She was a good woman. Mm-hmm. So that really was the biggest source of motivation for me to keep it together and move forward in life because he already lost his father. I didn't want him to come. I couldn't imagine that he would like come and look for me and say, oh, she ended up in a mental hospital or she committed suicide. I just couldn't live with him going back to his life very disappointed of who his mother was. So that really, really was the main source of my strength to go above and beyond any hardship that I ever endured. I would wake myself up. I would go to school. I would work in gas station, and I was getting paid four twenty, no, four thirty-five cents an hour to support myself. I didn't want to get a penny from my family because I was proud. I was gonna make my husband proud. I was gonna make my son proud. I was just fucking like I still kept that soldier mentality, but this time to say a big F you to the government mm-hmm. was to stay alive and live and enjoy life despite all the struggle. So that was I still stayed in that mentality, but it manifested itself to a daily life, which I was very, very unfamiliar with. Yeah. 
Can you just uh, briefly tell uh, of the encounter that you had when you did go to Norway and you did see your son? Well, I when when I was sure. So my friend says, "Sit down. I have a news for you." And as she's trying to, she knows, she knows my personality. So she's like, okay, I don't want you to start screaming. Just listen to me. I'm not sure if this is true, but I think I have a lead to where your son might be. As, ah, like, as soon as she mm. said that, I do everything that she said not to do. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, I had a, a partner, which is a female, Anita. Mm. And um, she also, we were in a relationship. I know that opens all kinds of other questions and stuff. But um, she, oh God, for like five years, all I did talk to her. You know, she was like the most unpaid therapy <laughs> ever, ever existed yeah. in this planet. She's one of the most beautiful soul on this earth who allowed me to fall apart and who watched me to put myself back on. So I'm in the United States. I have this team of fierce, fierce women who all consider themselves radical, feminist, lesbian, this, that. They are like pioneer of like movements, socially, politically. And I surrounded myself with these people. Of course they want to support someone that has a story like me. I'm not a textbook. I'm a revolution survivor. You know, they would give their heart for me, you know? So these people are still like, they're, oh, I wish you can meet all of them. They're badass yeah. women who to this day, like, I call and they drop everything or vice versa. Like, you know, these, these people are so close to my heart. Well, I imagine, I would imagine you're a hero to them. You're, you're a, uh, the ultimate, um, feminist success story in that you stood up for what was right no matter what the odds were no matter what the danger was that's anybody that has a cause <laughs> this is going to change the topic and the story completely because when you say hero is going to take me right back to the mental illness and how I suffered and the problems that I had in order to to fathom the scale of the tragedy when I'm in a country where nobody even give a fuck in my head that what happened to Iran, nobody even fucking give a damn if 20,000 people got killed in one night and not even one single media news bothered to broadcast that or talk about it. I am now dealing with the fact that I am living in planet I don't know what because life goes on as normal and I, again I to just make reference to people who understand that is like the Vietnam War veterans come back and people are in disco dancing drinking and all you thinking is who died who survived like it's, it's just you're two just, different worlds. You are just so disconnected with the outside world that you live in because you just are stuck in your head with what you struggle, with how you're going to deal with the tragedy, and on top of that, how the fuck you're going to pay your next bill and how you're going to uh, build a future, how you're going to go forward, how you're going to. 
And beyond all of that, the survival guilt, the survival guilt, because every time that I was trying to laugh from the bottom of my heart, I felt so guilty because my husband wasn't there to laugh with me and my friends weren't there to laugh with me. When I went and I saw a beautiful mountain and I want to enjoy it, it was this I didn't know. I didn't even know the term survival guilt till I went to psychology school and I found a name for it, you know. So this era that I am in United States, basically what I'm doing is trying to... Um, I lost that identity, of course. I left it behind. That was Iran. I was who I was there. There is no revolution here. There is no freedom fighters here. Here is about if your teeth look straight and wide enough or not. If, uh, I don't know, like, whatever, whatever it is. It's like I have to make a transition to who that person was to something that I have no clue is not. Even in Iran, I wasn't part of the mainstream. You know what I mean? I didn't have your normal dream, Iranian dream or American dream. You've always been an outsider. I've been an outsider, but it's like I didn't have that notion of this is my future. It was always about my people's future. This was about revolution. This wasn't about me making it to college, buying a home for myself and settling down. I was always about how to help the world. Like, we we, we need to... And you never stopped to think about it, what your emotional needs were and what absolutely and the pain not. that you had and the scars that you had that you would need to deal right. with. Right. And then in Iran, the difference is that everybody that you associate with is like-minded. You know, like yeah. you feed off of each other's strength. You have something to pump yourself up. Here, there's nobody that can even, even understand what I'm talking about, let alone to tell me, yeah, let's go, uh, you know, to Africa and change, you know, the, the, I couldn't find like people. People it, with a sense of purpose. Sense of purpose. And then that by itself became the biggest challenge for me to find myself, to, to replace that spirit that I was to something you know, like the first time that I heard that there are this non-profit organization and you go there and you can like talk against like, you know, the thing that your, uh, what is it, president do? And I'm like, would they kill you if you do that? They're like, no, no, they pay you. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, well, it's not a legit cause then. If you right. don't lose your life, I mean, right. why would I want to go get paid for so my reference to truth and, and a legit movement was that it had to be in that circumstances. Right. You can, like, you can be a podcast person doing the right cause and make a living off of it. Right. Like, it's not it's possible. It's a sellout. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's not, how could no, it? No, no. They need the to assassinate you right. so you know you're doing something right. Like, I just. What do you know? Why, what do you hear? I know. <laughs> I know I'm climbing up the I, iTunes chart. But. You, you know, I even, I even made a little joke with you in that email. And I said, yeah. you're a new stalker. And I'm like, oh, shit. Like, Paul really feel like having a stalker. Maybe yeah. that's why I didn't hear back from him. <laughs> <laughs> that's so, so funny. So tell the this, this, this story when you go to see your your son at the 
at his school. Yeah. So um, I already have a big team of people who are helping me. My number one fear is that as soon as they find out that I know where my son is, they go in hiding again. So I, and when I'm saying like, you mean they're they're going to disband you because they're they're going to no no the the mother-in-law. Oh, I see. The mother-in-law will. So I am trying to take it very very prepare. I have a lawyer here. I have a lawyer in Norway. I have sent a huge letter to at the time I think it was uh, Senator Barbara Barbara Boxer Boxer. Uh-huh. I uh, and all my good friends are they're all lawyers now, you know. Mm-hmm. So they're all like my house look like a freaking like little uh, non-profit organization. People are coming in, they bring in food, they are sitting down, they are mapping out what to do, who to call, what like they're bringing information. And again, this is really in so many ways about injustice. So everybody who was involved in any sort of cause, this was as good as it gets for them to come and make a difference. So it wasn't like, oh, they're doing me a favor or I wouldn't look like, oh, thank you guys. Like I felt this is a very collective, you know, story. I never felt like I'm doing it for them. They're doing it for me. This is about justice. Mm -hmm. This is about you know, going and stand for something that is wrong or whatnot. So, and I, whenever I say I, I mean we, because I had, and then the people like my family who weren't into this kind of thing because they are, they do have a, you know, normal life. They had a prayer committee where, this is a true story where my mom was in charge of a lot of people called my mom and said, we want to light candle, we want to pray. How are we going to do it? So my mom find this time zone different and find like who from what country wants to pray. And apparently the day that I'm supposed to go and see my son, there is a nonstop chain prayers that is happening through family and friends from one country to another as they're waking up. Oh, really? Wow. Can you imagine? Yeah. Wow. And the people who don't believe in prayer, because I have a lot of friends and co-workers who are whether Buddhist or this or that, they lighting up candle. Mm-hmm. Anita's family who are Catholic Mexican are in church, like throwing like food and like I, oh, Paul, like when I say extreme, like I was lifted. If if love is something palpable, I felt that I was surrounded by it. Like I was lifted by something that calls love through people's support and compassion. And I made it to Norway. I had the the police is involved. The lawyer is there. Everybody knows. The plan is that I see my son. But the only way that I could ensure the fact that he sees me before anything goes wrong was that he's in school. I have to do it there. I show up in his school. I already have made the album where my picture, his family's picture, my pregnancy, my wedding, his father, they are there. And I want to hand him so he can believe me. But I have no idea. I don't know how he look like. Mm. I don't know what his reaction is. I don't know what he knows about his life. But 
I had one phone that the police was waiting because I actually uh, charged the family as we couldn't do kidnapping mm-hmm. because it was consent, my consent that they did go back to Iran. I see. So in a, from a legal term, it was child abduction. I see. Which is a di- so I pressed, you know, charge against them for child abduction and falsifying information to enter a country and all other things. So I go... And I didn't need to know how he looked like. Somebody walked and it was Paris at age 14. Really? Like 98%. The class was finishing. Somebody walked and I knew that's my son. And I said, excuse me. Uh, I said it in Farsi. Can I just have a word with you? And he was like, he thought I'm a teacher or something. He's like, what? And I'm like, I just said it like this. I said, I'm your mother. He's like, what? He said, no, I have a mother. I said, look, and I started showing the pictures and all I saw, his eyes got really big because apparently my mother-in-law and me are in the hospital and he's, I'm holding him in my hand. And then all I remember, he just turned, I don't know what color, but I didn't care at that time. I didn't care. I saw my son and he knew he had a mother. Like my, I was like already somewhere else. Like I, w- I was hearing symphony, you know, la, 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 mm-hmm. la. Seriously, I was just like, I don't know. I can't again describe that. I was just, I just did something that I was hoping to do for last 14 years of my life. It's almost like they say your child is missing and you saw them and you know they're alive and they're here and that's what they look like. So all I saw him saying no, and he started running. He started running against like running. And I saw him for, and I, of course I wasn't gonna chase him. I just stood there very solid. And all I did, I called the police and I said, I saw him all clear because their plan was to go to the house that mother-in-law live and take him to the police station for questioning. Mm-hmm. So we thought through all of that and Every single minute I thought of worst thing and all that can go wrong and it didn't. And then later on come to find out that this was one of the most traumatizing moment of my child's life because for one, he never knew that he had a mother. He never knew he was abducted. He never knew that Imagine someone shows up and it's got to be incredibly your whole world is turned upside down. And yet that he needs to know is his right is his right is my right. My child was taken away from me. Yeah, it's my right to go. They they actively took my son away from me. And that selfish, selfish woman that put here put him through all of this and in order to justify what they did it wasn't enough but they character assassinated me as far as they could go to Sweden to Iran to everywhere that we had mutual relative and family that she has turned to a whore she's the one who don't give a shit she has left her child now we have to like completely just turn the table around and i was so defendless i was so like i can't explain but 
I was just so down to ground zero that I didn't know how to how to fix this. They were a big family and they were all trying to justify it. So as far as they could, they went against lying that the reason why they have my child is because I put him on the street and I didn't want him. Oh my God. So they got to keep him. And I had people who didn't know who I am when I was in Sweden telling me, uh, oh, that poor family, you know them so-and-so? And I'm like, um, yeah, I've heard of them. They're like, oh, they have this nightmare uh, daughter-in-law who goes to discos and sleep around and doesn't even call to ask how the child is that, and that poor grandma has to raise him after loss. Like they go on and on telling me about me and they don't know it's me. Oh my God. So of course I start isolating myself more and more and more and more to the point that I hardly knew anybody. Yeah, and now you're back in the United States. No, this no, point. this is the time that I was in Sweden. Oh, okay. Because I okay. told you that I have an era when I went really, really crazy. Like, uh, I, I didn't even have enough energy to kill myself, but I would have liked to. I just lay down on a bed and I think um, 10 days later, or I don't know, I just lay down. I wasn't drinking or eating or anything. I just closed my eyes and I guess I haven't paid my rent for so, so you, many this is a Sweden back then so you had, had moved back to Sweden at no that no point? no no. this is when uh, before I leave Sweden this is when they weren't giving me my son back oh and I they were see justifying, not when he was 14 no when no he was no, a no. Baby. this is when when they weren't giving him back to me they were I like see. telling everybody a lie and my husband he was in prison I had no way to tell him what's going on so I got really really mentally ill and it got to the point that I like you know again I'm just cutting so much detail of how to like make this you know like make sense but I remember apparently I have not paid my rent for so long and I haven't eaten or whatever so apparently I have eviction notice that gets through the door uh, and I'm not opening anything I'm just laying down and I guess they had said that in this day and day they're gonna come to the and mm -hmm. break the door and they break the door and they are like, oh, uh, there is a dead, dead person in the bed. And I hear them because apparently I was like so little and I was like, you know, and then they are like, they um, take the blanket off of me and I make some movement and someone screams that, you know, call the ambulance, someone is alive. Wow. And... Uh, the, the guy who was like breaking the lock to get in, I remember, just lifted me and took me downstairs and took me to hospital. And that was the beginning of the, the, that's when the I, mental that's, that's when I knew my husband was dead. My child wasn't going to ever be given back to me. And I just completely gave up. But again, uh, it wasn't like, you know, I just, just laid there. I don't know. That's all I did. And I don't know how long. So let's fast forward then to you go to Norway. Your character gets assassinated. Throughout. For, from there Thru on. Throughout. From there but on, that, all but, these years. But that's what kept you from being able to reclaim your son in Norway. Correct. 
Correct. And when, when, uh, well, already the DNA established that I was a biological mother in the, in, in the interview, my mother-in-law on the spot told them that yes, but then she started her other lies about why she had to take mm -hmm. just, just master, master in that, like, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. in, 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 in how she did this. She even convinced her entire children never ever like go, go along with this lie. She convinced everybody who mutually know us to go along. If they didn't, they would cut them off. Like they, for years and years, like really fought this. And I fought it just as much, but I didn't succeed. Like they were stronger than me. They, they had this. So my mother-in-law confessed to the police. So now it's her story against my story. And we are a whole bunch of refugees. Nor Norway is not familiar with our, you know, because we have honor killing in Iran. We have, even to this day, is a very loaded political issue. Like, you know, some say there are cultural differences. Some say, no, you know, any abuse is abuse. So this is again on the same line of the issues where you're not going to get 100% support of the authority unless you really, really pull some muscle and threat them that, look, this is no fucking cultural issue. My son is abducted. If a Norwegian woman, you know, had the same problem, what do you do? And you know the same thing, you know, in 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 United States, like the the senator never wrote me back, but then I know there is a movie made called Not Without My Daughter. But that starred Sally Field. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like in every in every aspect of every struggle that I do or people do when they are in in the lower chain of oppression you absolutely feel it in every fabric of your bone and body that how less or more you can be important based on where you from what you have who you are and who backs you up well you don't know my struggle as a white guy Exactly. I know. I even, you know, it's funny because. I'm kidding. No, no, no. Obviously. No, when you say that, I had an era where I decided that's when I was really trying to reinvent my new identity and finding out who I am and what, what, or seriously reinvent something. Cause, you know, like I have to become something that is not what I was in Iran. So. I had an era when I was going to San Francisco State University and I have decided that the white man was the ultimate enemy because I needed enemy to like stay sure. in that era. I was like stuck. Well, I have to say your odds are good if you're <laughs> going to pick anybody to, you know, historically the, the odds in the last uh, <laughs> 500 years, you're, you really can't go wrong. But yeah, to, to but Paul, I was young. I was so dramatic and like, I was like, if, like if somebody did had a business suit and was a white guy, if they look at me, I'd be, I'm like, what are you looking at? <laughs> because they were enemy. You know what I mean? I was sure. so harsh. I'm like, the guy is like, what is your problem, lady? Right. <laughs> Could be the sweetest guy in the world. I and know. Have, yeah. And then if he was a woman of color or an immigrant or whatever, just for no reason, I just loved them because they were the people. Right. 
you know so I had that's a, a very, very young person thing to go through probably. you know that, that that phase I think that's pretty common well I don't know I, yeah. I still to this day do know of people who are not young they are 50 years old and they still have that mentality yeah. you know and uh, I have respect with all I have evolved tremendously to to feel comfortable in my own skin and to be able to uh, really draw strength from our differences and build bridge mm -hmm. and um, try to reach out to each other because the, the more I understand bottom line is that we all as humans struggle and we all need help and everybody got something can t can teach to someone else. If it was 20 years a year ago, I would never listen to their podcast, but two months ago it did help me dramatically because I did trust the white man. <laughs> <laughs> what what was it? And that, it did pay off. <laughs> what, what was it that you wanted to say that uh, I said, well, let's talk about that that later. Um Okay, no, but I have to finish the sun really quick. Oh, okay, if I there's can. more. So no, no, no. So, uh, so at age fourteen, uh, when when he found out, um, I realized that this was like really a lot for him. So the struggle goes back and forth a little, and I decide to withdraw from my fighting for his custody because he's already fourteen. And he is just so broken and the family are putting a lot of pressure on him and making him even crazier. So I kind of told him to come when you're ready. I never thought he's going to take 10 years to get ready. But uh, again, that was for me a second time that I lost him because I saw him and I couldn't reunite. And I had to wait year after year after year, not knowing if he ever will come back to me. But at least I'd established to hear from him, of him, from school and everything. So it was a little better for me. And at least he knows the truth the now. Truth. And he knows Absolutely. should he decide to contact you, Absolutely. he knows where to contact you. But you haven't seen him since he was 14. Since he was 14 till two years ago. Oh, this I didn't know. Oh, yeah. See, two years ago, he sent me an email. He said, I know it's been a long time, but I'm ready to come and meet you. And he did. And for the past two years, we've been talking. We've been trying very hard to reconnect and deal with all that has happened. And I have heard his side of the story and how much struggle he had gone through. And we are still in the middle of it. But again, it was another miracle for him to come back to my life. Oh, my and God. In two weeks, actually, I'm going to see him for his vacation. Really? Uh-huh. Oh, my God. He's the most beautiful guy you can ever meet. And so what, he's 24 now? How he's old? 26. He's <laughs> finishing his, uh, I'm going to brag like any other mom. He's finishing his master in architect design. He lives in Oslo. Um he is a pro skater, has four sponsors. He speaks like five different languages. Uh, skateboarder? Skateboard, or? yeah. Really? Uh-huh. He is part of the Amnesty International for Human Rights, and he skates for awareness, political awareness. And I surf, 
So it's really weird when we get together and he loves to travel. I love to travel. He hates to admit it, but we are so alike. Yeah. We are so alike. Like the, he, he like taped all kind of CD music for me. I love all the kind of music. How did he that loved. feel to have him make a CD for you? I listen to these CDs that anything, anything that he offers me, there is a part of him for me. Like if he, when he left, he came and visited me first time. When he left, he, I had a bed. I made a room just for him. It was his room. I put like poster, blah, blah, prepare for him to come and stay with me. So when he left, I wouldn't touch his bed and I would just go every now and then and smell the sheet because I know how he smells. Yeah. And even that was a lot for me. Like I could smell what my son smelled like. A lot of parents I talk to love the smell of their children. That, I, I guess that makes that makes it's very intimate. It's very yeah. it's, it's almost like you're hugging them because when you hug someone mm -hmm. you smell them. It's just so intimate. When when my dad died um I remember going through his stuff and I pulled one of his t-shirts out and I and I smelled it and I could smell my yeah. dad and I remember thinking this feels kind of weird but it's okay it's okay because this is the last f physical way that I right. can right experience my dad right and I think sense of smell also is one of the things that you forget first before you forget their face or their voice. Yeah. It's kind of harder to remember or to recall. Yeah. Yeah. But I know, I don't know. It's just like, there's no, we are still in a very, like, we're just working on things. And uh, it definitely is a, is a difficult road, but I wouldn't use the word difficult because he's back in my life. So, Everything is for better. Like we have, there's a lot to sort out. Is there a tendency on your part to overwhelm him because there's so much feeling that you have? Do you, are, you know are, are you I, aware? Are absolutely. you aware of? Yes. Okay. So what what's happening is that I basically like put like mouse trap on my fingers and my feet to just contain myself and don't overwhelm him. I am, I work extremely hard to um, step over my own needs and my own struggle and really give up the idea that he's my son more than he's an individual who has gone through a very unfair life. He is very bonded to the family who took him away from me. He considered them as family. So I am in no place and I have no right to make this about me and the family. That is so beautiful and such a, a hard thing I would imagine to get through. I mean, that really speaks of your humanity, that, that, that you really are walking the walk of placing his needs first because I would imagine 90% of parents would place the truth first and go from that place because they could say, well, this is truly what happened. 
and not place his needs first because really his needs are more important than what the the actual truth is in the beginning paul it would take everything out of me it would take absolutely everything out of me to remind myself in a constant basis where my center is and who he is and what i need to do to like consider his situation but as time goes by it's easier and it feels really right yeah. and now i'm at the place where i really you know because when you are at that place where you feel really victimized it's really hard like you're so overwhelmed by by the tragedy that all you want to do and it was a fantasy to me and you know like there is no like book to go and get uh, you know uh, dummies whatever it is for mothers who after 20 like i have no again resources oh, no, you or seen reference there's, or no, no there's uh, uh, <laughs> abducted <laughs> children for dummies <laughs> so basically t when you talk about gray in your show yeah. you know and or or in reference to your own struggle okay if there is a grayest thing in the gray that's where my life has been since I remember I am as gray as it gets in all aspect of my life well I have to say you really sound like you're navigating it beautifully with a lot of dignity and yes I'm sure you've made mistakes okay, I'm sure I'm sure you've done things that you that you want to take back but who wouldn't given the emotional intensity of just, the things just read what I said here but I left a note for myself what don't, does it say don't brag okay so when you tell me in your show that whenever you get outpouring compassion and support from people then you are afraid that you are seeking attention mm -hmm. I am in so many ways so fucked up that when you try to give me compliment or anyone else, my immediate instinct is that, oh my God, if they know me, they probably wouldn't say that about me because I am very fucked up. I struggle a lot. And when you just hear like a good story in reality, I have so much up and down. I have so much I have fallen apart so many times. I have seen my low point, and six months later, I have seen a point lower that low point. So I don't want to glamorize strength and, like, you know, I don't want to make it look like that because your show is not about that. And the reason why I love your show is because... I actually get to hear something that is really hard to share. It's really easy to come here and say, oh yeah, I do this, and then you say, well, that's called humanity, good for you. It doesn't, you just don't go, it's, it's not a like store where you can go and pick up courage and pick up humanity and go and say how much. You have to walk, you have to struggle, you have to talk to people. You have to go through shame. You have to hate yourself. You, it is a second to second struggle to come through these things, to get to a place where you could sit and say, and to this day even, like now I'm like, oh fuck, am I misrepresenting myself? Because how come Paul thinking that I am walking the walk 
You know what I mean? It's just like this. I don't want to undermine the struggle that comes to I, get to places where you know, like again, I sent you email when you were talking about you know you and your mother, and I know exactly that 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 fabrication of gray. And the walk, and the time, and the effort, and the footwork that we all have to commit to to get out of it. And I want you to know, in every single story that I'm sharing with you, you heard or you haven't heard, I have gone through all of that. And to this day, I'm still going through it. And there is no guarantee if tomorrow you hear me and I sound like I'm the biggest loser, I'm the biggest fuck up. There's nothing to be proud of, and I haven't done anything right, just because maybe my son doesn't wants to talk to me again. It would destroy me. Like these, whatever that you see as a strength or however you see it, is nothing that I can hold on to. I have to wake up every day like an alcoholic, and decide, and commit that I have to walk and move forwards towards well-being. That's the only truth. I know this one. This is the only truth I know. If I want to stay healthy and true to myself, there is a lot of work that I have to do. On a day-to-day basis, and I'm no Buddha because there is so many days I wake up and I say fuck that shit. I turn my porn out. I fucking go see the most disgusting thing that nobody wants to admit, and I go do impulsive thing because I just can't take it. I need to disassociate myself with this, all that I have to battle with, and then the only thing that helps me to like. Go on sometimes is that I do have few friends that I call them confession booth, and I go and I tell them. And because that's another thing I know is that if I feel like I want to keep a secret, that secret at some point is gonna come and destroy me. Mm-hmm. If I am not able to share it, I am really concerned. But even if there is one person and I can tell it to, all of a sudden, whatever it is that I'm so ashamed of, loses its power, and then it gives me a little jump start to go and talk to the therapist and read about it and find out how the fuck I'm gonna cure myself from that destructive behavior or thought. And it gives that person that you tell it to, that safe person, a chance to love you more deeply. Probably, but I because because I have been talking about all this success. Let me line up the thing that I'm not good at. I'm 48 years old. For the past 10 years, not even once I had after I I I was in a relationship with a female for 10 years. Since then, not even once I felt intimate. Even though I have had sex with so many people in so many different places and in so many different way, I am frightened to make myself vulnerable because somehow deeply in my core belief, I think, for one, I might not be lovable. For two, if I get close to someone, 
something bad might happen to them. And again, these are not on the surface. I'm guessing these are the reason why. Because I don't ever walk and if someone comes, you know, to me and they're all looking good and fine to me saying that, no, I don't want this person. But I think I never put myself in a position where there is a possibility. And I suffer from it. But don't you think you're working towards the place where you will get there one day? Don't I don't know. There's there's always got to be a couple of things that you can overcome. I mean, I'm not going to be Buddha in 10 years. I'm, well, I'm not saying you need to be Buddha But, in but you know, like tackling all the issue you have is like the other day I was talking to my friend. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm fucked up on that one. I don't have the money. I don't have the time to address that one. It's not my priority right now. There are other bigger things that I need to deal with right now. So I don't know when or how in or in what, what speed I can get to wholeness because every day I wake up I have to sort this all that I'm telling you it's never definite in me I don't wake up but in definite what, term thinking that I have overcome everything oh I know and, and, and when I compliment you I'm not assuming that you're this rock solid person that never backslides that's we all backslide. We all take two steps forward and one step back. And what I want to say to you is just because you step, take one step back doesn't mean you're not a good person or that you're not headed someplace good. It just means you're human. Right. And the greatest love that I've discovered is being able to love myself even being conscious of my mistakes and my right. flaws. I know you're definitely ahead of me in that game. Because I listen to you very carefully uh, in terms of like being, you know, vulnerable and being able to ask for help and being able to uh, being human. I definitely struggle with that a lot because, again, um, for me to overcome a lot of my struggle, it's a necessity to be strong. But relying on that strength really take over of other things that I don't need to be strong about. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? It's just so automatic. It's almost like I really feel like most of the time I'm in a freaking war zone, battle zone. You can bring like a freaking two cup of coffee and say, hey, let's have a little dining out. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like it just doesn't work for me that way. I can like not be strong. I got a lot on my plate. So the world required you to be intense to survive and sometimes it's hard to to have that intensity turned off. Absolutely. And I am aware of it and I I know if I one thing that really came to my rescue to be honest with you is that I I write a little bit. I love poetry. I really try to create some outlet for myself and surfing. I started surfing 10 years ago. It's absolutely the it, it just like ensured my sanity because I know it's there I know nobody's gonna take it I know I can break it it, it just did that magic for me mm -hmm. you know and it's a big part of my life and I keep praying for more things like that to come to my life so I can have more resources to freaking give up this idea that this is a battle zone yeah. and I have to be strong at all cost 
what what was it that you started to to say uh, a while back? Um, you started to say something about two months ago. Yeah. Um, so here I am. Um, like about past two years, I am um, struggling a lot. I don't know if I should add another story to this or how how is our timing? We're we're kind of long on uh, on time. I think we're so. Then I just say this, that I was very, very depressed and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I should take medication or not. I uh, was in Internet. I, I didn't want to go to work. I'm really I, I go to therapists, not all of I don't want to like sit and be the educator to therapists. I want someone who can help me. I don't want to help them to find out how, like the cultural references. There's just so much headache. So I don't always get 100% out when I go sit with a, a therapist who doesn't know more. It becomes more like a storytelling for I them. I see, because there's so much foreign about your story. Yeah, yeah, you have to you have yeah. to let them know certain things. And then, like, the last therapist I had, it, it looked like I'm giving them, like, a story or something. So she was excited to hear the rest of the story. And I'm like, hello, lady, I pay you. I'm not here to entertain you. You are here to sort things out for me. So I get really frustrated when, again, these are those little, little things that I have to battle as yeah. a non-white male, you know, <laughs> Iranian-American. Because <laughs> there is not much reference. You know, there's not yeah. much help out there. So two months ago, I'm again in one of those big funk of... Um, is everything is hopeless, helpless, nothing can, you know, and of course it's, it's really symptom of depression. But when it starts happening, I'm not aware of it. Right. I, I think, think it's, it's reality. Me and things are going wrong and it's going to be permanent. And so I fell for that and it just got worse and worse and worse. And I'm like, fuck, I need to start going to, even if I am in the field, even if I have gone through it zillion times, it just sneak up and it's really hard to sink in right away that what's going on. So I'm going to this therapist, which I'm really like, oh, okay, I, I try it, you know, with, with all my doubt. I go see the psychiatrist. He tells me, oh, you have generalized anxiety with depression or you have depression with generalized anxiety. You have to take Prozac. And again, I'm not against medication, but if I think I can do it all. I can beat everything. You know, I have that mentality. So I, I tell him yes, but I wasn't going to do it. And again, make the story short. I talked to the therapist. He said, really just give it a try um, come and see me two times a week and I said what if you know I just go insane or I go crazy or whatever he said he promised to like you know call and not take me to the places that I work because you know I work in mental health so I made a couple of backup you work plans. in a psychiatric hospital correct, correct. yes yeah. yes and um, I'm a psych nurse mm -hmm. so um, I was just you know, like going through the internet and I was losing my mind. I was so tired and I keep putting mental illness, happiness, depression, and keep just playing to see what comes out that might surprise me. And then your site come up <laughs> and I'm like, what mentally illness, happy hours? What is that? And then 
I guess it showed me a podcast. And then I was like, podcast? I knew what podcast is, but I've never listened to anything. I'm not really into the pop culture. I'm not into celebrity. I don't care about any of these things. I'm in my own world. Like, you know, I'm in my planet, Nadere. So I was like, okay, well, you know, I, I just clicked in one because the instruction says to click one. I clicked one. And I guess before I know it, it's like, I, I know exactly it was episode 52. That's when I found it and I clicked it. So before I know it, it's showing that it's downloading and there's a line of downloading thing one after another. I'm like, oh shit, there is a virus in my computer. <laughs> I don't know how to stop this. I was so afraid and you know, and you're, I'm so fragile, fragile that everything is a disaster. Right. So as they are doing that, I just, I, I just like, fuck it. I left it alone and I pressed the first episode. Do you remember I, who the guest was? The first one is I, if you show me, I know who it is. It was the f- absolute. It was a lady, looked really pretty, and she was a little shy. All my ladies are pretty. Yeah. So, anyhow, so she, you started talking to her, and I'm like, hmm, interesting. And I clicked for the next one, and I really started liking it. I clicked to the third one all in a row on the spot. I was like, oh my god, I like to listen to this. And now I have started Prozac already for like three, four days. And I didn't know that in some cases, Prozac does make you feel worse as you're waiting for it to kick in. And it's a long-term acting, so it's going to take like three, four weeks before you start seeing any result. And I'm still not aware. I'm not like, you know the knowledge, but you don't know what it is till it happens to you. Right. So... As I'm getting worse, I'm convinced that I am crazy. I'm trying to think what psych hospital I'm going to admit myself. I'm trying to break it to my family in my head. I see my mom crying and saying she didn't. And I'm thinking of my son. Like, you know, just the worries get bigger. Oh, yeah. The darkness loves to extrapolate. I am like going to be homeless because I can't go to (laughs) war. And, you know, like just the end of it. I saw the end of myself in Valen, like, you know, in the street where they say, oh, that person used to be like, you know, really good person. She now. was an Iranian revolutionary. Yeah, 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 exactly. Give her a nickel. yeah, yeah, yeah. She's like, she has lice in her hair and nobody recognized. I was just like, just in yeah. that. So all I could do for the next two weeks or whatever time was to lay my bed, click the next episode, click the next episode. And as I was listening to that, and as Prozac was making me worse, and as I was going to see Sean twice a week, I was really, really able to hang it in there. Every single memory or thought or whatever your listener did share, every time that you said you're not alone, I'm not a schizophrenic, but I really thought you were talking to me. Specific, like... I couldn't ask for a better program in a better, more appropriate time to come to my life to say, hang it in there. That's all because I couldn't share it with my family. They would get too worried about me. I was too proud to tell. There are times you can tell people that you want to give up. And every day, every day, every day, I just, I went through all the episodes till I got to the point that I had to wait for the next week to happen. (laughs) (laughs) And I already talked to you in my head. 
there are times I love you, there are times I hate you, there are times I'm like, I doubt you. Just the same kind of parallel relation I have with myself mm-hmm. in my struggle. And um, bottom line, I hang it in there. And by the time I finished with all your episodes, the Prozac was kicking in and I was feeling better. And a month and a half later, two months later, I'm sitting here, which is just so crazy, <laughs> and talking to you. This is one of the absolute highlight of my life because I immediately got something and I have the chance to give it back. Because I know there are a lot of people out there. If you have doubt that you may not make it the next day, talk to me. I'll give you all the detail of what's like to make it another thousand times and go on. It, it's a proof and program like this and, you know, definitely any kind of source resources like this are absolutely important for everybody to have around. So personal gratitude to what you did and all the guests who shared their story that helped me to be here and very happy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Nadaray. <laughs> and to anybody out there that, that has doubt, there is nothing like a white guy. <laughs> Many, many thanks to uh, Nada Ray. And I got an update from her uh, because we taped that uh, a few months ago and her trip went well. She went to Oslo to visit her son. It went very well. They're actually both going to therapy now and they went to a week of therapy together and she said that uh, he is very quiet but he's processing a lot of stuff and they're they're moving forward. And I love that because that doesn't paint... You know, any kind of movie picture that overnight all of a sudden everything is is great that that shows that there's there's work involved and a lot of times it's kind of awkward and uh icky as we like to say but uh they're, but they're moving forward what a what a beautiful beautiful uh person and by the way she listened to this interview uh and hated it hated her voice hated everything about it and that that just shows how fucked up our brains are that something so powerful, such a powerful story, such compassion, such honesty that she could she could not hear that in herself. Um, before I take it out with an email that I got from a, a listener, um, I want to thank the people who helped make this this podcast possible. Uh, all the audio people that are getting clips: uh, Debbie, Megan, Tim, Zach, Matt, and Gary. Uh, all the transcribers, Jennifer, Angela, and Angela, Kristen, Sean, Hannah, Juani, Sherry, Murr, Nate, Wendy, Amy, Alexis, and Lindsay. God, that's a lot of people. Um, the guys that patrol the uh, the forum for spammers, John, Michael, Manny, and Dan, thank you guys. Steve Grieve, who does the website, thank you so much for all your, your work. Thank my wife, Carla, for always giving me good input. Thank you guys for your awesome emails and suggestions. Two great ways to support the show non-financially. Go to iTunes, give us a good rating, or spread the word. Do it with Reddit, Tumblr, uh, all the social media you can. The more you spread the word, the more people get to hear my podcast. That makes me happy. I'm going to read an email I got from a girl named Kimberly. She's 17 years old. And she writes, Hi, Paul. 
I think I emailed you a year ago completely depressed and did not reply to your very kind email suggestion of therapy. I did go to therapy, but I didn't know much about my depression and myself in general. I went to therapy for three sessions and then stopped it because I thought it wasn't effective. There was nothing wrong with her. I just didn't know what good therapy was, and I wasn't ready to be completely honest about who I was. There's a very evil and twisted side of me, and I just couldn't admit it. I'm hoping I'd write what I was too afraid to say to my last therapist in this email. As a sort of precursor, I start my therapy when I get back from holiday, and I hope that this time I'll get better, because now I know it's not going to be pretty. I'm not going to be the victim all the time, and I have to admit that I'm not a good person, but well, I'm trying. And I know it'll take a long time and a lot of work, but listening to your podcast, hearing your guests be so honest and lay their demons out, they let the world hear it. They let strangers hear it because they know they can lessen their self-slavery. It brings me so much hope and joy. It empowers me, really. It's a long email. Sorry about that. But, well, it's 2 a.m. I'm sharing a hotel room with five people, and I'm currently hiding out in the closet because I can't sleep, whether from anxiety or a symptom of snores, or a symphony of snores. Here goes. My biggest thing is that my issues are so lame. I'm sorry for that horrible term, but it's just the only word I can think of right now. I really fear that no one will ever love me. I constantly run around worrying that the people who do love me will stop suddenly. And I don't know what will prompt this, so I spend so much time running around making sure every conversation is funny, every date is exciting. I am tired. I just want to live and just be loved and love. But I don't know how. And sometimes... I get so anxious about it that I'll leave, cut them off or something, just not talk to them or see them in ages. I am a liar. I lie all the time to get attention, comfort, sympathy. Some of the things I lie about, I lie about being able to play the drums. I come from a family of musicians and I just can't click musically. I am so ashamed of this, it's ridiculous. I lie about having another group of friends. This one is so terrible. My friends would ask me to go out with them and I'd get anxious about being too depressed to be much fun, so I'd lie and say I'm hanging out with my other friends. There's this really petty satisfaction and sense of control. They are so popular and beautiful, I just feel so out of place. And well, I made some of them feel like they were second best and not that important, you know, which is so horrible of me because they were kind enough to love me. What the hell is my problem? I can't have a relationship with my father or many boys. I have a boyfriend and two childhood friends. That's about it for my male relationships, other than the horny boys in the year above who want to fuck. I don't know what my, why my father and I have hit this wall. He's the funniest, most compassionate and kind person ever. I don't know why I feel so sad and anxious around him. I kept pushing him away. I think he thinks I don't forgive him for physically abusing me when I was little, but I do. I don't even think about it anymore. Hell, I understand why he did it. I even agree that it should have been done to me. That that one is hard to read. Uh, I just want us to watch the Olympics together and sing together and just have a relationship, but I don't know how. I just burn with jealousy seeing him with my siblings. They laugh and play, and I just want that, you know? I'm so ashamed of being envious of this. They were good kids. I shouldn't be, you know, jealous. They deserve it. I'm socially just nervous. I think I have social anxiety. I mean, in large groups, I'm the life of the party, totally confident in cracking all these jokes. But when it's just one-on-one, I don't know what to do at all. It's like I'm under a magnifying glass and I'm disappointing the person. There's no one to, there's no one to compensate for me. 
I used to not even think about what I was saying, which, well, is not smart, but I now, but now I think it over and keep things to myself to the point where it's ridiculous. How are people supposed to know me and hear my stories and jokes if I keep concealing them? I'm not pretty enough to just sit there and smile. I wouldn't want to anyway. Through your podcast, I learned that, hey, I ain't that fucking special. People deal with this and it, it'll get better, but only when you can face it and deal with it. I realized how stupid I was, just like going to the doctor and telling him about my bruised toe instead of my fucking lung cancer. The only inspirational stories I've heard are about the people overcoming poverty, you know, people having the drive to accomplish great things. Your podcast has this celebration of the strength it takes to ask for help. I don't hear that a lot. It's construed as weak or unattractive where I grew up. You got beaten for asking for help. It's helped me so much to realize it's okay. It's more than okay. It's the smartest thing you can do. I started listening to this podcast at 16 years old, usually right after I'd gone to the bathroom and cut myself with a razor or picked up a hammer and just started smashing my skin. Thinking that I'm completely fucked. I am wrong. I'm a little shit and there's nothing I can do except to wait until I graduate and leave and kill myself somewhere other than home so my little sister won't see my body. Well now, I'm not much better, but I am 17. I plan to listen to this podcast on my way to therapy once every week. I've been diagnosed with depression and taking Prozac. I haven't cut in two months, been honest with my friends about my depression and flaws, and that is the greatest thing ever. You taught me how to do that on your podcast, and just being around people knowing that we all got baggage, let's just try to help each other carry the loads. It makes me cry literally cry tears of joy at the compassion and love people will give you if you just let them oh my gosh this is so long <laughs> it's not too long i hope therapy can solve these problems i'm having sorry about this sudden spam i love you could be related to me the the number of ways that you apologize about things um maybe that's why i'm so touched by this by this email um she writes uh I just really needed you to know uh, how you changed my life. Told me those simple things I guess other people knew, but I didn't. I think in some ways the depression that hit me was a good thing. I mean, it stripped me bare and made me look at my core, at my flaws, which I may have never thought to address if not for this gnawing pain that forced me to. I really, really hope you get a million blessings and that your life is full of joy and love and peace. What you are doing is so brave. You say stuff and show your cards in a way I haven't seen people do much in my life. And it healed me. Thank you, Paul. Kim, that's the kind of shit that gets me up in the morning. When I'm depressed and I don't think I can face the day. When I read an email like the one that you just wrote, or I meet somebody like Nada Ray, or read a survey like Wayne at the beginning of the show. And it just lets me know that I'm not alone in this. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this uh, this episode. And I just talked to Nada Ray about 10 minutes ago. And she just got back from a vacation in Mexico with her son and his wife. Uh, it's just so awesome. So awesome. Uh, yeah, follow her uh, on... Um, social media uh, because she's definitely got her finger on the pulse of what is happening in Iran uh, at the at the moment and um, 
hang in there through the holidays. We'll see uh, on the uh, on the other side. Uh, actually, we're gonna we're gonna have best of episodes for the next two weeks, um, and we'll be back with new episodes uh, the first week of January. Um, hang in there, and never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely.